Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Like double dog, dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing you know? PFTPM podcast, wild card weekend award edition, plus some of your questions, if we have enough time to get to your questions when we get there. Last time we did this MDS, we handed out awards for the entire season. It took a while. I appreciate appreciate the effort very much. This should be simpler. We're back to our old format. We've got four awards, player of the week, rookie of the week, coach of the week, call of the week, and let's get right to it. Your wild card weekend player of the week is... Russell Wilson, and I felt like he was not getting enough credit. There was so much talk about, well, Carson Wentz got hurt, so that's why the Eagles lost. I felt like we didn't talk enough about Russell Wilson, who threw for 325 yards, uh, by far the, the most productive day that any quarterback had over wildcard weekend. No one else hit 300 yards. Russell Wilson, 325 and just did everything that the Seahawks needed him to do. He, he hit some deep balls, and uh, he, he really was in command of the offense. I liked the way he played. I think the Seahawks have to feel very good. They may be as confident as any team in the league in their quarterback for the rest of the playoffs. I, I don't know that he's the best quarterback in the NFL. Might rather have Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes for one game, but Russell Wilson is certainly more experienced in the playoffs than these other quarterbacks. And uh, I I thought he played extremely well. I was actually a little surprised coming out of that game that there wasn't more talk about how well Russell Wilson played. Somebody asked me recently who the better quarterback is for that division around game this weekend at Lambeau field, Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers. in your view, who is the better guy right now? Russell Wilson is the better quarterback right now. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is not the same quarterback he was a few years ago when he was the MVP. Russell Wilson still playing at his highest level. Yeah, you know, and I agree with that. That was how I answered the question as well, that Russell Wilson is playing at a higher level overall with the running ability, the throwing ability, obviously. And, you know, the, the Seahawks were able to throw the ball well. And one of the things Chris Sims has been complaining about, Jim Schwartz, the Eagles defensive coordinator, not taking away the pass and daring the Eagles to run the football with, or the Seahawks rather, excuse me, to run the football with Travis Homer and Marshawn Lynch and Robert Turbin as the options. The thinking being that if you focus on taking away the passing game, the Seahawks wouldn't have been able to cause that same kind of havoc that they did in the passing game if they had to focus on trying to run the football. So I agree with you. Look, the Seahawks took what was there, and it worked, and they advanced, even though I thought after Carson Wentz was injured it would be a blowout. It wasn't, but uh, all it takes is more points than the other team, and you're on to the next level. All right, for me, it's from a guy that was on a losing team, but in my view, he was the best player on the field on Sunday afternoon in New Orleans, and that's Taysom Hill. He had one pass attempt. It was completed for a 50-yard gain, 
not a touchdown, but a rating for that one pass of 118.8. He had 50 yards rushing, and he also had 25 yards receiving. And I think I saw a tweet from Pro Football References account pointing out that Taysom Hill is the first player in the postseason to ever have at least 25 yards passing, rushing, and receiving in the same game. I think I remember that correctly. And here's the thing. They didn't use him nearly enough. And when he's on the field, he gets me on the edge of my seat. And he should (coughs) – excuse me, I tried to fight that off as best I could. He should have the the Vikings on notice, should have had them on greater notice that – he can do a lot of damage because he did, and they almost lost the game because of him. Yeah, and you know, the play that I really loved was when Troy Aikman says on the Fox broadcast, oh, I don't like how they're taking Drew Brees off the field. That was actually the play I loved because it it, it gave the Vikings this sense that, well, if Drew Brees isn't even on the field, um, we, we know we're just playing a run. I didn't see if the Vikings actually changed their personnel when Breeze came off the field, but I wouldn't be surprised if they even uh, made a personnel adjustment to really stop the run. And that's, that was the play when Taysom Hill threw deep and they got that huge 50 yard gain. Deontay Harris made a phenomenal play to adjust to the ball was a little underthrown by Hill, but I loved that play when they actually did take Drew Breeze off the field, because usually they would put Taysom Hill on the field have Drew Brees line up as like a wide receiver, but I actually liked not having Brees on the field at all because that lulls the defense into thinking, well, we know they're just going to run here. And I actually would have liked to have seen more than that. You know, it, Sean Payton, I, I'm not, I, I'm sure he, he, the last thing he wants to do is create questions like, hey, did you bench Drew Brees there? But I would have loved to have seen Sean Payton do a full drive where Drew Brees is on the sideline and Taysom Hill is doing everything and give Taysom Hill an option like, hey, make a call at the line. If they're bringing the whole defense up like they think you're going to run it, audible to a deep pass because we've seen he's capable of doing that. I would have loved to have seen even more from Taysom Hill as much as we liked what he did do. Seven touches in the game for 125 yards. That's 17.85 yards every time the ball ended up in his hands, running, passing, or receiving. And then there is contributions in the special teams. He had a chance to block a punt. It looked like he got held a little bit. It was something Mike Tirico pointed out while we were watching the game in the NBC viewing room. But Hill is a weapon. And when you consider that Sean Payton compared him to Steve Young before the season, and when you look at Drew Brees being an unrestricted free agent, Teddy Bridgewater also due to be an unrestricted free agent, and Taysom Hill a restricted free agent, which means if they re-sign Brees and commit big money to him, it would not be that difficult for another team to swoop in, make Taysom Hill a big offer, gladly give up a first-round pick. Oh, I don't know, a team like the New England Patriots that would love to have a weapon like that, a mobile quarterback who could be crafted into something the Patriots haven't had in this 20-year dynasty And I think it makes for a tough decision for the Saints. And if I'm Sean Payton, as hard as it would be to say goodbye to Drew Brees, if I had to choose right now, I'd say goodbye to Drew Brees and roll the dice with Taysom Hill and maybe try to keep Teddy Bridgewater around. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting teams in the league to watch this offseason. Maybe the most interesting because that could go so many different ways. Because what other team 
has three quarterbacks, all of whom we're going to be very interested to see what happens to. We we don't know what's going to happen to Drew Brees or Teddy Bridgewater or Taysom Hill. It's just a fascinating situation. I can't remember a team where we're saying going into the offseason, they got three different quarterbacks and we don't know which one is going where. I remember. I remember a team. It was two was years that? ago, and Teddy Bridgewater oh. was one of the three. It was the Vikings. It was Case Keenum, Sam Bradford, yeah. and and Brad. Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah, and yes. all three became free agents, and the Vikings kept none of the above. I think they the kept- Saints will at least keep one, and I think Taysom Hill is the one they should keep. Yeah, well, but there's another element, though. What if the Saints do what the Vikings did? They say none of the above, and they're the Saints are the team going after some other quarterback, Phillip Rivers, Tom Brady. I mean, the, the possibilities this offseason, I think there are more possibilities for just fascinating stories at the quarterback position than I can ever remember before. Ryan Tannehill may be available. Jameis yeah. Winston is available. I mean, look. I, Marcus Mariota. Does anyone think we, Marcus Mariota is a starter? We all have our opinions about Jameis Winston, but Sean Payton has dealt with him five years, twice a year, and, and, and barring suspension or injury, but he knows him. And maybe he sees something in Jameis Winston. He thinks he can iron out the bad and maximize the good. But, you know, Sean Payton's going to find a way to get the most out of whatever quarterback he has, and he can choose any quarterback he wants. And I think he's got some affinity, well, clearly for Drew Brees. He has a connection to Teddy Bridgewater. Teddy Bridgewater stayed instead of going to Miami, where he would have probably been the starter for most of the year, given the way Josh Rosen performed. And then Taysom Hill. Sean Payton discovered Taysom Hill. You don't let the guy you discovered go somewhere else and become a star. So big decisions coming for the New Orleans Saints. And by the way, Taysom Hill's 29, right? So it's, it's yeah. not like he's, he's got a long time. The, the iron is as hot as it's going to be. He's entering his prime. And if the Saints are ever going to get that maximum performance out of him, now's the time to give him the football. All right. Rookie of the week time for wildcard week at MDS. Who do you have? I'm also going with a player here with a, on a losing team. And that's Bill's running back, Devin Singletary, who I thought just had a, a really good game. Maybe wasn't getting enough attention. He had 58 rushing yards and 76 receiving yards. And he, he was really the big play player that they needed. I, I would have liked to see him get the ball in his hands even more in that game. And he's been an exciting rookie this year. He's made a lot of plays uh, for for the Bills in a lot of situations. I don't think they were expecting as much of him as they ended up getting out of him as a rookie. And I actually thought that if they had known quite what an explosive playmaker he is, I thought he would have done more earlier in the season. Uh, but, but to me, he was just a really impressive player on Saturday in Houston, and he's one I'm excited to see going forward. I think he's going to have a very big impact, both as a runner and as a receiver in his career. Uh, may, maybe not quite the the workload of a Christian McCaffrey, but that type of player who can who can really beat you in a number of different ways. Well, they felt strongly enough about him to cut Lashawn McCoy loose the weekend before the regular season began. And, you know, the Bills are just a weapon or two away, whether it's a tight end who can command extra attention or a receiver who can get double coverage. They are not far away from having a potentially dominant offense. And having Josh Allen there should help as a recruiting tool 
for more skill position players to come to Buffalo because Allen has shown that he has a lot of promise, and I felt bad for him. I thought he was going to pull off that win in his first playoff game halfway through into the third quarter at 16 nothing, and then it all fell apart for the Buffalo Bills. All right, I usually like to draw on as many games as possible when issuing these awards, but I'm going to go back to a game you've already handed out an award from, the Seahawks-Eagles, because you went with the Russell Wilson side of the equation for player of the week, rookie of the week, the guy he was throwing the ball to, nine targets to DK Metcalf, seven catches for 160 yards, and a touchdown. The guy has been great this year. A.J. Brown, his Mississippi teammate, was a little bit better during the season, but DK Metcalf got it done when it mattered the most, helped the Seahawks advance, and I think that's the kind of performance a record performance for a rookie making his playoff debut. That's the kind of thing that that can accelerate the learning curve and make him even better next year, regardless of what he does the rest of the playoffs. Next year, he's going to be even more confident. He's going to feel like he belongs, and he's going to feel like he's on the verge of becoming a dominant player because he is. Yeah, and, you know, I think we really need to give the Seahawks credit for drafting him in the first place. And one of the things I've noticed about Pete Carroll and John Schneider is – they don't seem as bothered when you point to a player and say, well, here's the things he can't do. Like with DK Metcalf in the draft, I think he fell to the end of the second round because people are saying, well, there, there are things he can't do. He's not a real refined route runner. He doesn't cut on a dime. I think John Schneider and Pete Carroll are really good at saying, okay, well, then we won't ask him to do those things. He's big and he's fast. We'll tell him, run downfield and catch the ball over the the cornerback who's covering you. And I I think that's something that the Seahawks have been good at is if there's a player who is maybe not a complete player, they say, well, that's fine. We we don't have to have him do everything. We're going to emphasize what he does well. I mean, it's actually somewhat similar to the mindset behind why they drafted Russell Wilson is some people said, well, he's too short to play in the NFL. They said, Hey, he does a lot of things well. If we need to move him around in the pocket more so he can get better uh, passing lanes, we can do that. You know, we're not going to let the thing he can't do, he can't grow to be six foot four. We're not going to let that hold us back because we like all the things he can do. Well, DK Metcalf has already grown to six foot four and he's big and strong and fast. We're going to emphasize the things he can do. So I like that about the way the Seahawks evaluate players. And I think that really benefited them when they decided to draft D.K. Metcalf after the rest of the league had let him fall. Well, and I remember right before the draft, someone who I know very well and I trust, who is a former evaluator with a team, said that D.K. Metcalf is going to fall to round three. And I was stunned. And apparently the Seahawks got the same intel because they got him at the bottom of round two. I think they traded back in to get him at the bottom of round two. And uh, before he would fall out of the first two rounds and into round three, but that was a steal. And maybe, and he said after the game to Michelle Tafoya, it was good for him that he went in round two. It's almost like the Michael Thomas dynamic. When you aren't taken in round one of the draft, you know, because it's a false accomplishment to be a first round draft pick, but we build it up to make people think it's a big deal. Hey, I was a first round draft pick. Like I can exhale now. No, no, the work's just getting started. And I think if you end up being drafted lower than you expected to be drafted, that's the kind of thing that can piss you off and fuel you. And it avoids complacency, but it also lights a fire. It helped Michael Thomas. And I think it's helping DK Metcalf. All right. Coach of the week for the wild card round MDS. Who do you have? Well, I'm going with Mike Vrabel, who uh, you might say out Belichick to Belichick. 
with a, a lot of aspects of his coaching, but I think the one that got the most attention was the way he used that very same kind of loophole in the rules that Bill Belichick talked about earlier in the season where you can get multiple consecutive penalties and the clock will keep running. And I that was something that I don't know that a lot of people even realized was in the rules that the clock doesn't stop on all penalties all the time. It's a little complicated. In the last five minutes, the clock does stop. There are also certain penalties that do stop the clock. But you can do a delay of game and then do a false start intentionally, and the the clock will keep winding after the penalties. So the, the Titans were able to take a lot of extra time off the clock doing something that Bill Belichick had talked about. I heard you mention on PFT Live that it was pretty weird that Bill Belichick actually talked about that publicly. You know, usually Bill Belichick is not a guy who's going to be explaining the tactics that he's using that are helping his team. He he did it at a time he didn't need to do it against the Jets. The Patriots were way ahead. And then after the game, he just said, yeah, that's a loophole in the rules. They ought to change it. But until they do change it, that's something that we can do. And it, it, it was kind of like advertising to the rest of the coaches there were probably some coaches in the NFL who hadn't even thought about it until Bill Belichick did it. And sure enough, Mike Vrabel does it to his old coach. So I thought Vrabel ha- had a real good game plan. I thought the Titans really found some ways to attack the Patriots defense, which was great all year, but did struggle to stop Derrick Henry. And uh, really thought Mike Vrabel brought his A game and, and maybe outcoached his old coach. I'd love to know if Mike Vrabel was aware of that quirk in the rules apart from Bill Belichick announcing it to the world after using it in garbage time of the game against the Jets. My guess is he did, but I still am perplexed that a guy like Bill Belichick, who prides himself on saying as little as possible, would crow about that. Why do you want to tell anyone about that when there's a chance it could be used against you? And it shows that no matter what we accomplish, no matter how careful we are, that little that little dash of vanity that pops through at the wrong time can screw up everything. And wouldn't it be great if Rabel really didn't know about it? And he saw what Belichick said and said, I'm going to follow this away. You never know when I'm going to be able to use it. Oh, lo and behold, I can use it against Belichick and take a big chunk off the clock as the game is getting closer and closer to triple zeros. Just a fascinating twist on a, a crazy weekend. And I think it's going to mean Bill Belichick saying even less than he already does in the future, if that's even possible. All right. My coach of the week is going to be Mike Zimmer because I think that Zimmer learned a lot of hard lessons two years ago in the NFC Championship game when the Vikings lost to the Eagles. Now, you could argue that that game in many respects was, and the entire Eagles playoff run in 2017, the football version of Slumdog Millionaire, where everything lined up absolutely perfectly one drive after another one game after another they just kept lucking into big plays and big moments and big spots and they advanced to the Super Bowl and they win it but one of the things Mike Zimmer said after that loss maybe we aren't doing enough of scouting of our own tendencies of what we developed during the regular season and maybe it was out of necessity but the Vikings changed up several things they had to put someone else in the slot because Mike Hughes ended up on injured reserve out of the blue on Friday with a neck injury. So Andrew Sandejo, of all people, was the nickel corner, a guy who had joined the Eagles as a free agent. They cut him before the deadline for 
compensatory draft pick consideration arrived. So they, they didn't get dinged for signing uh, Andrew Sandejo. So he comes back to Minnesota. He's been a backup safety. He gets pressed into service. He does well because he wasn't burned. We didn't hear his name, which means he either didn't have an interception or he didn't get embarrassed. And, and what Zimmer also did, he flipped Everson Griffin and Daniil Hunter inside on passing downs. They created a lot of pressure, a lot of havoc up the middle for Drew Brees. And I got the feeling listening to Zimmer's press conference on Monday that uh, he and, and actually, I think it was Sunday after the game. He's got more up his sleeve and he's careful what he's saying because uh, he knows he's got another challenge coming up this week against the 49ers. But it's the old dog learning some new tricks where you're getting away from your system and you're realizing that 16, now 17 games of film has put enough out there that a smart coach like Kyle Shanahan can pick it apart. So you have to see where your weaknesses and your tendencies are and where the gaps are in your scheme, and you have to do something different than what film would suggest you're going to do. That's a fascinating aspect of the game. Now, there's only so much time to do it between Sunday and Saturday, but I think Mike Zimmer's going to do it again. He definitely did it between Sunday and Sunday before the Saints game, and it helped them win that one. We'll see if he can do it again with the 49ers looming. Yeah, and you know, when that game started with the Adam Thielen fumble in the Vikings' own territory that the Saints recovered, my initial reaction was, this game's going to get away from the Vikings quickly because the Saints were the biggest favorites of Wild Card Weekend. And when you get a break like that, you're already big underdogs on the road against a team that's you know been better than you all season, and then you, you make a mistake like that, you fumble in your own territory, it's very easy for the game to just get away from you and you look up and it's 21 nothing in the second quarter and you've got no hope. And I thought the Vikings were really poised. I thought their defense did a nice job on that first drive. And really for, for the first three quarters, I thought Mike Zimmer's defense really looked, looked like it was just better prepared than Sean Payton's offense other than the Taysom Hill plays. The Taysom Hill plays were the only time that it looked like Sean Payton was winning that chess match with Mike Zimmer. The rest of the time, it was Mike Zimmer winning. Um, I, I really thought the Vikings looked well-prepared, both in terms of their game plan and in terms of just like, no, we're not going to hang our heads because something went against us. We're not coming into this game thinking the first time we fall behind in New Orleans, you know, we're screwed and we have no chance. No, we're we're going to come in here and win this game. And so I, I was really impressed with the way they responded to that early setback. I was really impressed with the way their defense was was ready for the Saints offense. And I agree with you. Mike Zimmer did an excellent job this week. Yeah, that moment early in the game reminded me of two things. First, it reminded me of the Tommy Kramer fumble at about the 10-yard line on the opening drive of the Saints-Vikings playoff game 32 years ago, where in that case, Bobby A. Bear, not Herbert, threw the ball to Eric Martin, and the Saints went up 7 to nothing. And somehow, some way, the Vikings were up 31 to 10 at halftime. I watched that game. It's amazing. If you want to see how different football is now than it was 32 years ago, dial up that game on YouTube. It is awesome and scary to watch the brutality. And it's amazing to see Anthony Carter, who was maybe 5'10", 150, bouncing up after every big hit that he took throughout the course of that game. But it reminded me of that moment, and it also reminded me of 2018 Vikings Saints. The Vikings were driving late in the half, 
Adam Thielen fumbled deep in New Orleans territory. It was returned the other way. I think it was either for a touchdown or close to a touchdown, but it ended up being a 14-point swing, and I felt like the air went out of the Vikings then, and they just they lost their belief that they could win, and then it was just all downhill after that. They didn't slide into that mindset. The defense stiffened. They gave up only three. They scored three on the next drive, and then it was game on. And yeah, the Saints scored a touchdown, made it 10 to 3, but the Vikings worked their way back, took the lead, went up 20 to 10, held on, went to overtime, blah, blah, blah. But, but I think if they would have scored a touchdown on that first drive, things could have gone sideways quickly. And you're right, it could have been 17 0, 21 3. It could have been out of hand by halftime. And then it's just Saints advance and Vikings go home. All right, call of the week time for the wild card weekend. MDS, what do you have? Well, I'm going with a non-call, and it was one that really wasn't even talked about, that wasn't mentioned on the broadcast. Not many people talked about it immediately afterward, but I've seen more people talking about it since, and that was Zach Cunningham, the Texans linebacker, who had a, a, a hit on Josh Allen, the Bills quarterback, in overtime, that if it had been called a 15-yard penalty, would have moved the Bills into first and 10 at the 27. They would have been in field goal range, only needing a field goal to win because, remember, the Texans had already punted on their first possession. And I have to say, I felt like it should have been flagged for lowering the helmet. But some people disagree, and that's fine. What I think it did show unequivocally, though, is we still don't have a real good handle on what exactly constitutes a penalty for lowering the helmet to initiate contact because to me Zach Cunningham did just that he lowered his helmet initiated contact with Josh Allen's helmet and and I thought it easily could have been flagged for what what could have been the game-changing penalty um to me that that's a, a problem that the NFL has that we still haven't really figured out when do they call this penalty and when do they not call this penalty? And uh, it, it was a, a question we were raising that whole offseason when they created this lowering the helmet penalty. And I still don't feel like we have a clear answer on it. Yeah, they should have called it on Sunday when Jadavian Clowney dove into the helmet in the back of Carson Wentz with his helmet lowered. They made it sound like it's very simple. Lowering the helmet and initiating contact with the helmet. I remember when we were at the league meetings and they passed around this rule that had been that had been promulgated by the league, and it's like it wasn't even on the list of proposed rule changes. What is this thing? And I remember the first time I read it, I thought, this is a little broad. And uh, when it's used, when it's not used, when it's called, when it's not called, it can change everything in a game. And, uh, you know, the league wants to take the, we- the helmet out of the game, doesn't want the helmet to be used as a weapon, and I, I, you know, a lot of people in Philadelphia upset about what happened to Carson Wentz. I mean, calling the foul would not have brought him back for the rest of the game. But it'll be interesting to see what kind of a fine gets imposed on Jadavian Clowney because that will be the admission implicitly that that the foul should have been called. And uh, same thing in that Bills game. The, the suspension, the fine, not necessarily suspension, but the fine tells us that there was a mistake and that there maybe should have been a call when there wasn't one. All right, uh, my call of the week... And I got to refresh my memory here. I usually remember what these. Oh, oh, I know what it is. And I, 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 I've been so pissed off about this. I mentioned it today on PFT Live when we did our goats in a bad way draft of the week. I may mention it tomorrow when we do our airing of grievances on PFT Live. But, but to me, it stands out because the lack of common sense that we have seen in a couple of big spots this year from NFL referees 
is mystifying. It started with Walt Anderson in that stupid gotcha game that he played with Dak Prescott in the Rams-Cowboys coin toss when Dak Prescott said, defer, and then somebody said, we want to kick, and Walt Anderson was like, oh, you said kick, you said kick. And like, but he had said defer. Like, why are you pouncing on the illogical, stupid response that no one is going to choose to do? It's not like it's blowing 90 miles an hour during the game or there's some other condition that would cause somebody to actually choose to kick off to start both halves of the game. There was nothing like that. It was just an attempt to try to defer. And then on Saturday in the Bills-Texans game at the start of the second half, and I remember watching the game, and it's like something weird's going on here because Lisa Salters was making her report from the sideline after the opening kickoff, and you hear this roar, and she turns real quick. I thought somebody had stormed the field. Like I, I thought something serious was going on, and it turns out that Tony Carrenti was awarding the Bills a touchdown because the kick returner for the Texans fielded the ball after doing the universal clear, I'm not going to run it. Now, that's not, a, that's not a fair catch, but it's a message to his teammates. He's not bringing the ball out. Catches the ball, stops, flips it in the direction of Carrenti, who walks away from it like it's a radioactive used diaper, and just lets it all play out, and then mistakenly calls it a touchdown. It actually should have been a legal forward pass and a safety, but he called it a touchdown, allowed the play to continue, and they did the right thing and fixed it, but it is so asinine that he would even entertain the possibility that that was anything other than the kick returner giving himself up. Like, what kind of goofy mindset does it require to have a it's like is he just is he bored like what what are you what are you trying to do where you just don't acknowledge exactly what it is that's going on in front of you it it is so stupid and it's a poor reflection on Carrenti. it's it's a reflection of bad leadership that any referee would think that that's okay and wouldn't know to to you know you, you want to hammer it into these guys heads never do anything that reflects that you have no common sense. And that shows that Tony Carrenti in that moment had zero common sense. Maybe a nice guy, accomplished referee. He's been around for a long time. But that was so stupid. And here's what it also does. At a time when they're trying to make the kick return as safe as it can possibly be, he lets the thing continue. And there's a scrum for the ball. Somebody could have suffered a concussion. Somebody could have gotten injured in the ensuing mad rush for the football that never should have been regarded as a live ball. The whole thing... I, and it and look, it ended up being no harm, no foul because they fixed it. But the whole thing was a stain on the weekend. And I, I'm not saying Kareni shouldn't be a referee anymore because th- th- there aren't enough bad referees currently to go around for the NFL. But it's something that never should have happened. And they need to be sure that something like this never happens again. It was the NFL referee equivalent of George Costanza telling the bubble boy, no, it says moops on the card. Everyone knows the answer is Moore's, but no, nope, sorry, it says Moops. That that's what you're doing when you say sorry. You you didn't you didn't take a knee before you put the ball down on the ground, so therefore you fumbled. It it just was, as you said, a, a complete lack of common sense. And uh, a, the the other element that I want to know is who made the call to change it? Did did Al Riveron? make the call? Did, did did someone upstairs? Because Tony Corrente, as the referee, is supposed to be the guy who knows what the rules are, knows what to call if two officials see something differently. Corrente is the guy who's supposed to decide. But somebody came out onto the field, one, one of the like assistants who 
who has the, the communication device, came out and quickly corrected Corrente. I'd like to hear, if that was Al Riveron, I'd like Al Riveron to come out and say exactly what his communication was. Why is that a situation where he can communicate with the ref, but there are others when he can't? It, to me, Tony Corrente opened up a can of worms that never should have been opened up. And here's my view. I don't have any problem with Al Riveron using that pipeline to fix mistakes, and I don't care what the mistakes are, and I don't care if it goes beyond what he's supposed to use it for. I, I said last year, if Al Riveron had simply buzzed the referee in New Orleans and said, somebody's got to drop a flag right now because there was obvious pass interference, we've got to fix this, that would have avoided all the crap that we've had to deal with ever since, right? So sometimes there is a little Machiavelli. Machiavelli meets football, as Dwight Schrute would say. That's what it is. And, and, and I, I have no problem with it. Fix it. Get it right. Especially when the outcome is so egregiously wrong. And, and I know that the NFL has specific procedures that must be followed, but I don't care. And I don't, I, look, I, I don't, hey, Al, you want to lie to us? Lie to us. I don't care. I wanted that to be fixed. So whether it was the alternate official on the sideline who was pitching in to talk some sense into Tony Carrente or whether he was just the messenger from Al Riveron, I'm fine with it. Because they avoided something. Could you imagine if that had been a touchdown and it would have been 19 nothing? Even if it would have been a safety. And then the Texans punt from the 20 to the Bills. They go down and score again and it's game over. It determines a team's season with some ridiculous, stupid lack of common sense. So anyway, that had me very fired up. And I'm still upset about it. And uh, uh, the, the league just lucky it didn't screw up the game. Because that's the kind of thing, especially with legalized gambling, that the league has to worry about because at some point they're going to cross a bridge that's going to result in the creation of a federal agency that has oversight of National Football League officiating and maybe other sports as well, and that's the last thing anybody wants. All right, uh, what I want to do right now, MDS, we've handed out all the awards. We're going to shift gears, and we're going to answer a few questions here. We actually moved fairly quickly today, so maybe we'll get to a few of these. Let's start with Dorso Alexander who asks via Twitter, what can the Vikings do to slow down the 49ers defensive line and George Kittle? Two very distinct challenges from different sides of the ball. Your thoughts on what the Vikings can and should do. Let's start with taking steam out of the 49ers defensive line. Well, that that's going to be a very tall order because the 49ers, that, that's been really the strength of their team this season. And they've had a phenomenal defense. But, you know, I would like to see... Um, Delvin Cook get a lot of carries early on in the game, and maybe we see if that's what it takes to get the 49ers defensive line not as quick to rush the passer. I think I think that if if we've got the running game going, I think that might be what gets the 49ers defense back on their heels a little bit. So tough to say because I, I really I, I like Passing the ball, and I think that generally speaking, passing the ball is more efficient than running the ball. But wouldn't be surprised if the Vikings want to get Dalvin Cook involved early in the game and hope that that influences the way the 49ers defense plays. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And there was a lot of talk last week about the fact that the Saints were the number four rush defense in the NFL statistically with a total of 1,461 yards allowed on the season, while the 49ers number 17 with 1,802 yards. So, and, and the Vikings were able to run the ball 
effectively against New Orleans. They got into some of these traps where Kevin Stefanski, the offensive coordinator, I think trying to audition for a head coaching job, getting a little fancy. I remember Hugh Jackson doing that his last year in Cincinnati as offensive coordinator before he became coach of the Browns. Had these crazy formations. He'd split wide receivers out wide. and just I mean, not wide receivers, obviously. Offensive linemen out wide. Just things like, hey, look at me. Look at what I can do. Hire me to be your coach. Just stick to what works. Dalvin Cook, Dalvin Cook, Alexander Madison. Dalvin Cook, Dalvin Cook, Alexander Madison. Over and over and over again. And then you can use play action to freeze Nick Bosa and his teammates long enough to find a guy open down the field. That's what the Vikings need to do. Now, look, it's easier said than done, but that's what they need to do, and they need to stick to it, and they can't outsmart themselves the way they did at times last week. And the other thing they got to get rid of, MDS, and this drove me crazy on Sunday, that damn toss sweep that they kept doing and kept doing no matter how many times it didn't work and it almost resulted in a disaster late in regulation if Dalvin Cook's knee goes down a half second later that ball's up in the air and it's a touchdown for Vaughn Bell and the Saints are up 24-20 that toss sweep was not working it made the the third down attempt in overtime a third and five instead of a third and one or a third and two they have to quit doing that because the 49ers defensive linemen and linebackers are athletic enough to go get that ball. Just go up the middle, up the middle, off tackle, up the middle, inside zone runs. Get get away from that cute stuff. Do it once in a while when you know they're going to crash into the middle, but don't do don't make it a staple of your offense. So they need to be very basic, and they, and they need to be very simple, and they need to hope their defense can play uh, as well as any defense has played all year against the 49ers. That's going to be the challenge because George Kittle can do so much in the passing game in that very elaborate and exotic running game that Kyle Shanahan has designed. And George Kittle, along with Kyle Juszczyk, huge pieces in popping those guys for long gains. That's going to be the issue. Not necessarily covering Kittle. It's going to be dealing with what Kittle can do in the running game to open things up for that stable of running backs. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be interested to see how well they can pressure Jimmy Garoppolo to not allow him to have much time. To find George Kittle, I I think that's going to be very important. Uh, How well that Vikings defense can can get to Jimmy Garoppolo, I think is one of the more interesting questions of this wildcard weekend. We've never seen Jimmy Garoppolo in the playoffs before. He's certainly spent time in the postseason as a backup in New England, but never as a starter. And I'm going to be interested to see how he approaches this game. Is, Is this game going to be... Uh, tough for him mentally, or is this going to be the the time that we see just what kind of a winner Jimmy Garoppolo is? I kind of like the the idea of him against that Vikings defense and and seeing what they can do. So that that's going to be a very interesting one to me. We know he's authored a couple of big road wins: uh, the one at New Orleans, the one at Seattle. But at home, like wh- where's the signature moment where he makes the big throw in the big spot? They had the romp over the Packers that really doesn't count. They lost to the Seahawks late. And remember, in overtime, he was ineffective with some of his throws. And on that last drive when the 49ers had it, he missed a couple of guys that could have at least kept the clock running to keep the Seahawks from driving down the field and getting uh, the game-winning field goal. And remember, we were talking about how that tie would have loomed over potentially week 17 of the season if uh, if the Seahawks and 49ers had settled for a draw instead of the, the the 49ers losing the game. And you know what? I, I have to go back and look at the 
If that would have been, if that would have been a tie, instead now we'd have to play out the rest of the season. But if that would have been a tie instead of a 49ers, well, they ended up winning the. the, the never mind, never mind. I knew I was going to talk my way into a jam there. The 49ers won the division anyway, so it worked out. But it could have gone the other way. And if the Seahawks end up getting the ball across the goal line and winning the division, that's when we would have said, "Aha! They should have played for the tie back in November." All right, Jimmy Garoppolo's first game in 2018 was against the Vikings a long time ago, but he's played them once before. He's faced that defense once before. He was 15 of 33, completed 45.5% of his passes. That's not great. 261 yards, 7.9 average per throw. That's not bad. One touchdown, three picks, passer rating of 45.1. Vikings won the game 24-16. That was in Minnesota. It was a long time ago, but, but it's, you know, there is some apples to apples here in that, he was the quarterback. Kyle Shanahan was the coach and offensive coordinator, essentially. And Mike Zimmer was the guy running the defense. So I don't know whether that tells us anything or not. But your point is well taken. This is the first time we will have ever seen Jimmy Garoppolo playing in the playoffs. All right, another one, Sean Alvishire. Shouldn't Sean Payton be getting more criticism for playoff preparation and game plans? The last three years, the Saints have played tight and downright awful in postseason play after great regular seasons. MDS, your thoughts? Uh, I don't know that I would agree that they played awful last postseason. I mean, they were a bad call away from the Super Bowl. Um, but certainly it's valid to criticize Sean Payton. I wrote something criticizing his timeout usage. Uh, I thought at the end of both halves, really, especially at the end of the, the fourth quarter, but even at the end of the second quarter, I thought the Saints did not manage the clock very well. They ended up missing a field goal at the end of the second quarter, making a field goal at the end of the fourth in two opportunities, I thought they had to possibly score a touchdown. So, yeah, absolutely valid to criticize Sean Payton for that. You know, if you look at the 16-game regular season as a whole, you'd have to say Sean Payton was one of the better coaches in the league. I mean, they they lost Drew Brees for five games, won all five of them, went 13-3. and three. Most years would have had a, a bye week this year. Unfortunately for them, there were two other 13 and three teams and they lost the tiebreaker. But top to bottom course of the year, Sean Payton, I think, did a very good job this year. But absolutely no question. You can absolutely criticize him for the way the Saints played. I thought he was outcoached by Mike Zimmer on Sunday. I don't think Sean Payton would ever say this publicly or privately, but I think he's done some incredible coaching in the latter years of Drew Brees' career. That A lot of these plays, now look, Brees has to process and get rid of the ball, but a lot of these plays are drawn up to maximize his ability to do what he does best. He's not making a lot of these throws where the, the play breaks down, he buys time, and he saves the day. The fumble in the fourth quarter when Daniil Hunter got after him and knocked the ball out of his arm, that was a result of a bad route that apparently was run by uh, Michael Thomas and Drew Brees wasn't able to deal with it, right? He was he had to get rid of the ball quickly. It wasn't there. Daniil Hunter was in his face. He didn't have the, the athleticism, not many quarterbacks do, to get away quickly from Hunter and didn't have the ability to get rid of the football. And, you know, it goes to the play design and construction that allows Drew Brees to do what he still can do best, and that's Sean Payton designing those plays. And you're right, last year they were almost in the Super Bowl, and they should have won the game, but for the ineptitude of the officials who missed the obvious pass interference that was right in front of them. So I, I don't think that, that Sean Payton deserves significant criticism for what happened. You pointed out the timeout issue. How much of a difference would that have made? I don't know. 
But uh, Peyton deserves credit, I think, and he was a Coach of the Year candidate for taking the team to a 5-0 record while Drew Brees was out with that injured thumb. Speaking of pass interference, Richard Ide has a very good question. I've got a very short answer to it. More pressing offseason issue for the NFL, overtime scoring rules or pass interference replay review? And I'll take this one, and you tell me whether or not you agree. Without question, they have to fix pass interference replay review. I mean, with the overtime scoring issue, and I I believe that it should be a situation where the team that kicks off, if the team that receives scores a touchdown, the team that kicks should have a chance to match it. And I'd be in favor of using the XFL's intended shootout from uh, the five-yard line where the teams go back and forth five times each to determine the winner of the game. I I want something that's fair and equitable to both teams. But for the NFL, the far more pressing issue is fixing replay review of pass interference. The current system has to go, and they have to come up with something that allows the league to avoid the worst-case scenario but doesn't create every week feeling like a worst-case scenario of trying to figure out what in the hell the standard is and when it's going to be applied. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, for one thing, not many games go to overtime. It's not like it affects every game, the the overtime scoring rules. There are a small number of games that would change possibly if the overtime rules were different. Pass interference, I mean, that's a big penalty that, that affects most games. And it doesn't necessarily change who wins most games. But in a lot of games, calling or not calling pass interference makes for one of the biggest plays in the whole game. One of the most important, decisive games in a whole plays in a whole game can often be a pass interference penalty or a play where pass interference should have been called and wasn't. And it just has to be done right. I'll be interested to see, does the NFL address it by changing the rule? Does the NFL address it by changing the identity of the person who decides, i.e. firing Al Riveron? Uh, I don't know, but I, I think that they need to do a better job than they've done in this first year of pass interference being reviewable. That doesn't mean they need to scrap it, by the way. I, I've heard a lot of people just kind of throw up their hands and say, just get rid of it. Stop having replay review of interference. I'm not convinced they need to do that. I'm convinced they need to implement it better than they have so far. Well, and... You know, I, I think that part of the problem is Rich McKay, the chairman of the competition committee and other members of the committee, thought that they would be able to just say, this is a 100-year event. It's never going to happen again that we have this horrible call, and we'll be fine. We don't need any new procedures. And so they didn't plan for anything that was going to be as effective as it could be. So they get to the league meetings in March. There's a revolt. They have to push this thing through. And then it's like, oh, crap, how are we going to do this? Where's the bar going to be? We went for a while thinking the bar's here, then the bar's here, then it's kind of back here. And now based upon what happened on Sunday in the Vikings-Saints game with the last pass from Kirk Cousins to Kyle Rudolph, it's back up here again. It's got to be egregious before the interference is called because we saw the hand, we saw the push, we saw the hand flip. I mean, that's how much of a push it was. We saw the head jerk back of P.J. Williams. So um, they just need to come up with some other system. I've been a proponent of Sky Judge. And let me tell you, MDS, I'd be fine with this. Scrap it officially and tell us they're going back to the old way. I'm fine with that as long as... They privately tell Al Riveron, 
when you see something that is over-the-top egregious, you hit the buzzer and you tell them to drop the flag. Basically make the league office de facto sky judge. They don't have to officially change the rules. They don't have to admit it. They don't have to say anything. But whoever's in that job, whether it's Riveron or someone else, you give that person the ability and you encourage them to avoid what would be a disaster. And again, it's back to common sense. You know it when you see it. You know when you need to do something to avoid what is going to be a major controversy for the NFL. If they want to do that, I'm fine with it. Because... Uh, the alternative of trying to pick through these plays and micromanage contact, it, it's never going to work. It's never going to work the way it needs to. They just need to have a fail-safe to avoid the obvious, the truly clear and obvious, holy crap, what just happened moment, which happened last year. And there haven't been a ton of those during the course of the, this year where we have that same level of, oh, my God, that's a miscarriage of justice. If they just let Al River on or whoever has that job hit the button and fix that if it happens again – I'm fine with it, even if they don't admit it, MDS. Yeah, well, that works in the playoffs. But what about on a Sunday at 2 in the afternoon when 10 games are going on simultaneously? Is the league office equipped to do that? I mean, I think that's where you need a sky judge in every stadium ready to help the officials immediately. And I'm fine with that, too. I want Sky Judge. That's what I want. I want them to spend the money necessary to have a member of the officiating crew who is watching what we see at home and instantly giving feedback aimed at fixing mistakes, not as part of the replay function, but just another set of eyes, no different than the caucuses we see all the time on the field. This is a direct caucus from the person who's in the booth down to the referee to give the input on what they saw or didn't see. It's not going to be an easy job. And I think it's a great way to employ referees who no longer have the physical abilities to keep up with the the gladiators that they're trying not to get trampled by, but they still have something to offer. You know, an Ed Hockley, any retired referee you put them in that sky judge position, and I think it could be very, very effective. All right, a couple more real quick. Um, Gigi McDonald, thoughts on Peter King's idea that coaching searches should be delayed until the Monday after the Super Bowl because it's unfair to candidates still in the playoffs and it's unfair to teams still in the playoffs. Your thoughts? I like that idea. I, I'm not sure how well the league would be able to enforce it. I think there would be a lot of tampering, so to speak, where – uh, an assistant coach of a team that's already been eliminated has a verbal agreement with a team that, yes, I'm going to accept your head coaching job as soon as the Super Bowl is over. So I, I would worry about how enforceable it is, but it makes sense to me because I do think that it, it's this weird situation where the assistant coaches who are doing the best job are actually the ones who are putting their own careers uh, in the worst position because they're helping their teams win, which means they can't advance in the workplace, at least not officially. And then it also uh, it, it puts teams like the Colts with Josh McDaniels in a very difficult situation because they thought they had Josh McDaniels, but because the Patriots were in the Super Bowl, they couldn't do it officially. When Josh McDaniels got cold feet, they had to start all over again. Frank Reich ended up keeping some assistants who had actually already agreed to work for the Colts, thinking they were working for Josh McDaniels. And that became a little awkward. Although the, you know, Frank Reich did a good job his first year, got to the playoffs. Despite all that, I thought that was a, a, a disappointing situation that could have been, uh, it could, could have been handled better. I think all around that year. And maybe if we just didn't have this period where teams are hiring new coaches right now, maybe we would avoid it. So 
it makes sense to me. My only question is, would it really work with the realities we have of the way NFL teams operate and the way NFL coaches operate? Yeah, I don't like it because it would be circumvented and it would be even more predetermined before the search begins who the coach that is hired is going to be. Already we see that far too often where the owner knows who he or she will be hiring and that person gets hired at the end of a coaching search that is sure to check the boxes for the Rooney rule but never honors the spirit of the rule, which is to get teams to take their time and not prejudge the search, not have an ending point that you work backward to justify. I think that that would be even more pronounced if everyone had to wait until the Monday after the Super Bowl. Also, you got the Senior Bowl. You need to have coaches in place if you want to hire coaches. You can't send nobody to Mobile, Alabama from your coaching staff because you fired everybody and you're not allowed to hire a new one yet. Now, some teams don't have their coaches hired by then, and that 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 is part of the the risk that you take if you don't hire somebody and you want to wait for somebody who's still coaching. And what I think they should do, and there was talk of this after the Josh McDaniels fiasco, and, and it's bubbled up from time to time, they should just let an offer be extended and accepted effective the day after the Super Bowl or the day after the coach's team is eliminated, period. You, you can get Josh McDaniels to sign a contract. He knows he's going to be the coach. Remember when Charlie Weiss did that, when he went, Uh, and took the Notre Dame job but stayed with the Patriots and just kind of worked both jobs, and the Patriots were fine with that. And I'm not saying you work both jobs, right? You don't do anything for the other job at the NFL level, but at least you know that you have it, they know that you have it, your current team knows that you're going to be leaving, and it's taken care of, and everybody can focus on one last run, let's do this right, and then once it's all over, we're going to move on to other things. Yeah, you know, there have been some... Odd situations that have arisen. I mean, Bill Parcells, when he was coach of the Patriots, he's got his team in the Super Bowl, and he's talking to people with the Jets about, hey, as soon as I'm done with this Super Bowl, uh, I'm going to leave the Patriots and go go coach the Jets. I mean, there, there have been some situations like that that have arisen where you just wonder, how is it ever going to be enforced if you have this rule? So I guess I guess what I'm saying is, I like the spirit behind what Peter King is proposing here. I'm not sure if it's enforceable. I think you're saying you're sure it's not enforceable, so they shouldn't even try. Yeah, I think just go ahead and let guys be hired. Just let, We know that it's happening. We know that these unofficial offers are being extended, although it looks like it's not going to happen at all this year, depending upon what the Browns do. But but just go ahead and, and let the interview happen. Let the offer be extended. Let the offer be accepted. Let the contract be signed. And then nothing further is done until the work is done. Because they're all going to be trying to advance their legacy. They're all going to be trying to win a Super Bowl. And the extra money that goes along with it, you want one of those rings. You want to be part of a championship team. What are you going to do? Shut down? Well, I got my next job lined up, so I'm not going to give a crap for the last couple of games here, even if it means you know getting a Super Bowl ring with my name on it. I mean, it's ludicrous to think anyone would would lack the competitive drive, much less the integrity, to do the best they could on their way out the door. And they know they're leaving anyway, right? So why, why have the uncertainty? Why have the stress? Just go ahead and have it done and let everybody set that aside, put it in a box on the shelf, and focus on uh, the task at hand. All right, one more, I think. I want to get to one more before we wrap. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, from our good friend Tom Marshall, known on Twitter as a Red Zone Alk. Has Wade Phillips been sacrificed to deflect attention toward the Rams' offense, and Jared Goff. MDS, your reaction. 
Yeah, I I think there's something to that. I I think that if you look at the Rams this year and what went wrong, you're listing a lot of people on the offensive side of the ball before you get to listing Wade Phillips. And so I thought that was an interesting move by Sean McVay to decide not to bring Wade Phillips back because I absolutely think Jared Goff deserves more of the blame for the Rams taking a step back. I think Sean McVay deserves some blame, too. I don't think we saw the the kind of innovative offense that we had seen a year earlier. I think what we saw was more a lot of teams spent a lot of time in the offseason studying what Sean McVay does with his offense. Uh, I, I think we saw some teams offensively steal some of those things, and I think we saw some teams defensively better prepared for some of those things when facing the Rams. So uh, I I don't think that Wade Phillips was the problem in Los Angeles by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Wade Phillips, if you go all the way back to last year, his defense played very well against the Patriots offense in the Super Bowl. They certainly played on that side of the ball well enough to win that game. The offense didn't play well, and that's why the Rams lost the Super Bowl. And then this year, it was the offense that declined more than the defense. So, yeah, I think that's a good observation that, you know, Sean McVay can't fire himself and he can't say that, well, it's all the offense's fault, so I'm going to fire who exactly. It's easier for him to move along from the defensive coordinator because he's not a defensive coach, but I don't think Wade Phillips was the problem there. I like the conspiracy theory. I like it when it's someone other than me that's pushing that notion. I don't really buy that that was the issue. Uh, I, I I personally think, and I've seen this from time to time in the 20 years I've been covering the sport, I think there's a touch of age discrimination going on here where Wade Phillips is 71, Joe Barry's 49. He's the guy who reportedly is going to be taking over, although I haven't seen anything more definite recently. When Alex Marvez first flag that Wade Phillips could be out. He mentioned Joe Barry as the replacement, but it happened to Wade Phillips three years ago in Denver. They didn't want Joe Woods to leave some and be a defensive coordinator somewhere else. So they pushed Wade aside and they moved Joe Woods up. He's now 49, was 46 at the time. But I do think that there is an element of let's move on from the older guy and let's go with a younger guy um, so we don't lose the younger guy to someone else because we only have the older guy for so many more years. And it's not classic ageism, but it is a situation where a guy's age works against him. And the teams can get away with it because nobody's ever going to sue for age discrimination because if you do, you're never going to get another job. And Wade Phillips wants to get another job. The moment you sue one NFL team is the moment you are frozen out for good of that 32 company industry known as professional football at the highest possible level. So I think that has something to do with it. And maybe it's a combination. Maybe it's mixed motives. But at the end of the day, you know, unless they were just being nice, there are a lot of positive things being said about Wade Phillips on the way out the door. And the Rams on their own website have an article pointing out how the defense was six spots better in the rankings this year. Then why isn't he coming back? Yeah, and – Pro sports is an industry where age discrimination kind of gets tolerated in a way that it wouldn't in in other industries. And I mean, I, I think I, I can't cite one off the top of my head, but I think I've even heard NFL owners say things like, yeah, well, you know, we want a young innovator as our coach. And, you know, it, you can't say young when you're when you're talking about who you want to hire. I mean, that's just that that's not 
something that you are allowed to do when you're when you're hiring people. You can talk about levels of experience that you want a person to have. You can talk about wanting a person to be innovative, but you can't say a, a young innovator. And yet it just kind of gets accepted in professional sports in a way it wouldn't be in other industries. One of the cases I handled when I was practicing law, and this is a good 16, 17 years ago, involved a fact pattern where a 48-year-old employee was in a meeting with a bunch of other employees, and there was a Michael Scott type who was running the meeting who made a comment that stupid about wanting young and my eventual client was laid off not long after that, and yada, yada, yada. The case was eventually settled for a significant payment of United States currency. It's stupid, right? But the thing is, you're never going to be the plaintiff in a case like that if you still want to coach in the National Football League. And if you don't believe us, just go ask Colin Kaepernick, MDS. Yeah, that's exactly right. There will not be... A, a coach who would do that. Wade Phillips, even if Wade Phillips knows for a fact that he has a great case, if Sean McVay came to Wade Phillips and said, you doddering old man, I'm sick of working with you, Wade Phillips still won't turn it into a lawsuit because Wade Phillips wants to coach in the NFL and he knows that part of being a coach in the NFL is put your head down, get to work, don't complain. And uh, he, he knows that he would he would be harming himself. He, he would maybe even be harming his son, who's a, an assistant coach. People might might start to say that his, his son, who, who wants to be a head coach someday, I'm sure, is the type of guy, oh, we know how Wade Phillips and his son are, that, that they're going to make waves in the coaching world. It, it just isn't worth it to Wade Phillips to push it, even if he has a good case. It's one of the reasons why the Rooney Rule is what it is and why there wasn't litigation back in 2002 from Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary. They were not going to find a plaintiff because no one who was being disrespected and overlooked arguably – and you look, no one – rarely does anyone come out and admit it. That's why those cases are such a challenge. You know, the case I talked about where the Michael Scott type manager actually blurts out they want to go younger, that doesn't happen very often. You have to show, and it's a very difficult and delicate process of comparing employees in similar situations and how one employee is treated versus how another employee is treated. The rules are applied one way. The rules are applied a different way. And the inescapable conclusion is that there is some bias there based upon a protected characteristic. And I don't miss that life at all. But the point is, you're never going to have the smoking gun. You're never going to have, when it comes to potential race discrimination, you're not going to have the coach who says, I'm willing to sacrifice my coaching career in an effort to be the one who who changes things the way they need to be changed. And I'm not, hey, I it would be the ultimate selfless move for someone to say, I will trade my future coaching prospects in the NFL for the opportunity to finally fix this problem and create a standard that forces NFL owners to truly give fair consideration before making their hire of a head coach. All right. On that note, uh, we will wrap this edition of the PFDPM podcast. MDS, let's do it next Tuesday for the divisional round. I'm off to San Francisco on Thursday, and I'll be there on the sideline for the Vikings 49ers game. So I'll hopefully have even better input as to who the coach, player, rookie, and or call of the week would be. 
Uh, so look forward to talking to you again next Tuesday. MDS, great stuff as always. And everybody, we'll see you tomorrow morning with PFT Live. We'll have a PFT PM. I think later in the week, I think I'll do another one before we head to San Francisco. Either way, we'll have plenty of content at ProFootballTalk.com and have a great day. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.